do love you and praise you and thank you, God, for these gals that have come to sharpen one another, to learn from you, to sit at your feet, God, and um, just really to increase in their faith. So we ask that you would speak, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see in this final chapter of James chapter 5, so much in James, right, about um, maturity in Christ, practical Christian living. We've gone through, you know, what not to do. We've talked about uh, the tongue. We've talked about uh, spiritual warfare. And yet, James now leaves those topics, and he now focuses on the root of all kinds of evil, and that is the love of money. And I found, and maybe you have found this to be true as well, but it doesn't take much money to be consumed by money. Have any of you ever found that to be true? It doesn't take that much money. In fact, I have found that um, those times where I struggled the most financially, John and, and myself and our young family, was the times that I was most consumed with money, was when we were struggling the most with money. It was really uh, the source of much contention early on in our marriage. Uh, one of the top three <laughs> reasons that uh, spouses argue is money. And uh, no matter how much money that we have, it always has the ability to take over, to consume us, to possess us, to draw our attention away from the Lord and to it. And that's why Paul wrote to young Timothy and warned him, in 1 Timothy 6.10, saying, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It even has the potential to lead some to crave it more and more, which eventually leads to drawing them away from their faith in Christ. The bottom line is that we are to steer clear from the love of money because it leads to all sorts of problems. Of course, we need money to live and function in the society. We need money for the church to function as well. But there is a danger in this. It is not money itself, for we all have to have money, right? It is the love of money that James stresses here. It's fine to possess things, including money, as long as they do not possess us, right? That is where the evil lies. In this chapter, James seeks to join two themes in this chapter together, which really equal our answer. The theme in the first half of the chapter is the problem of money. The second is the answer to it, prayer. The problem, really to everything, is just a prayer away. Instead of giving up when problems come our way, the mature believer is to turn to the Lord in prayer and to ask for help. But the immature believer looks to others and their own experiences and skills and abilities to provide for the answer. While it's true that God will often use others to meet our needs, the first answer is always prayer. James never says 
that it's a sin to have money or even to be rich. We can think of so many people in the Bible, can't we? I mean, Abraham comes to mind. That was an extremely wealthy man, and yet his wealth never had him. In fact, he never even owned a home. We know that he was a nomad, a pilgrim, that he traveled and lived in a tent, moving from place to place as a reminder to have a light touch on these things of the earth, as a reminder that this was not his home, that his home was where? In heaven. We have moved, John and I, eight times so far in our almost 26 years of being married. And I will say that moving often helps you to keep a light touch on the things of the world. Keeping a light touch on the things of earth. And keeping our, our mind heavenly focused. So today James will address two very different types of people. He addresses the worldly wealthy and the struggling saint. They are different in many ways. They are different in how they live. They're different in how uh, they aspire, in their goals, in their differences in what awaits them also in the future. James begins by writing a strong word of rebuke to this group of people, the first group, the wealthy. And then he writes some words of encouragement to those that are struggling. Let's begin in verse 1. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your rich Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cried out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You who lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, you have fattened your hearts as in the days of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. That's a pretty strong rebuke. As James opens up this fifth chapter, he sounds much like a prophet of old, doesn't he? I mean, it is a strong word against these um, people. Now, oftentimes, the prophets came with a message that no one wanted to hear. And often, we know it was rejected, right? The question arises, though, in this portion of Scripture, to whom is James addressing this rebuke? Is it to believers or non-believers? Now, some suggest that due to the contrast in the first few verses, uh, 1 through 6, and then the contrast then in verses 7 through 12, there's a switch. And I know our uh, study pointing that out. Beginning, it says that uh, you who are rich, and then the rich ones, and then in verse 7, he begins with brethren. So there's a dilemma. Like, who, who... is the author speaking to those who are brethren and those who are not, those who are believers and those who are not believers. Still others, though, feel that he is writing to those in the church who were pretending to be Christians. Regardless, though, of who he is addressing, the word is strong and the rebuke is severe. So in the contents of verses 1 through 11, James is stressing we see the second coming of Jesus Christ, where Jesus will return and establish his kingdom, 
in doing so, these two groups of people will be affected in different ways. And that is the point, really, that James is trying to get across. One will receive the judgment, and the other will be receiving rewards. So as we look closer at these first few verses, we see that James gives a warning of the judgment to come. Looking at verse 1, we see it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. James calls for an immediate response. When he says the word now, not later, but right away, now. They are not to put this off. He tells them to weep and to howl for their miseries that have come upon them. These words, reap, excuse me, weep and howl, mean to sob out loud. It means uh, a lamenting sort of a cry that shows sadness and shame and regret. It speaks of a verbal, vocal, loud, lamenting, wailing kind of sorrow, strong, emotional outbursts as people see Uh, the judgment that is awaiting them. And many have stopped talking about hell in the church today. We don't hear it maybe as often as we used to hear it. Some people feel it's too harsh to speak about, but we cannot stop warning people of the place of judgment. In fact, we know that Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven because he did not want anybody to go there. This should be what we speak of as well. We should never stop sharing of the coming judgment for those that we love. And, um, and even for the lost, we need to continue in love sharing of one of two places that all people will end up. We really, though, have we not been desensitized by the world uh, that makes light of hell, portraying it as some place that you go to party after you die. This is not what hell will be. We know what the Bible talks about hell. We know that it says there'll be um, um, gnashing of teeth. It'll be hot. Um, they will just uh, want their, their thirst to be quenched by a drop. We know the story um, in the scriptures that speaks of that by just a drop of water. And we know that it is not a place. We also know about hell that somehow they'll be able to see other people, uh, possibly those people uh, that, you know, are on the other side, that may be in heaven. You can see what would have been. But we do also know that there will be um, a warning, and we are the ones that are to carry that warning to people that we love, is that we do not want them to go there, to that place of doom that if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you are destined to. So we see why Jesus spent more time talking about this than he did heaven, because he truly did not want anybody to end up there. Now, three times in this short book of James, James deals with the rich within the church. Apparently, this was a big problem. In the church. And James points it out. You recall in chapter one how he points out that the rich lacked perspective on their temporary riches. And then in chapter two, he points out that they were being given preferential treatment, you recall. And then in chapter three, he condemns their behavior. We see also that Jesus spoke 
quite a bit about the dangers of being wealthy. Remember the parable of the sower. He spoke to um, of that seed that was thrown among thorns where the cares of the world and the riches and the deceitfulness of that, they choked out anything that the Lord wanted to do. And of course, we can't forget the story in the Bible of the rich young ruler, right? Who wanted to go to heaven. He wanted to know that he would be there, and yet he could not give up his possessions. And that kept him out of heaven. We see that in that case, his possessions did indeed possess him. Jesus said concerning this rich young ruler, though, he said, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier, you recall, he said, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And King Solomon, one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, said in Proverbs 23, 5, do not overwork to be rich. I find that interesting. Because of your own understanding will cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away like the eagle flies towards heaven. It's true. It can be here and gone in a moment. We know. Riches are fleeting. But a relationship with Jesus Christ is everlasting. So... We see that what was the reason for the judgment that was coming upon this wealthy, um, these wealthy people in the church, James tells us that the root of it was really several things. And the first was selfishness. Verses two and three, he says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have reaped up treasure in the last days. Now the word heaped up, it means really stockpiled or hoarded your wealth. And we may even be able to think of somebody that we know of that really is wealthy and yet can't get enough and stockpiles it like James describes here. We must though remember that James is not condemning those who are good stewards of their finances and who plan ahead for retirement and so forth. That's wisdom. That's not gluttony or hoarding. That's wisdom. However, he's writing to those who have gained as much wealth as they possibly can and they stored it away. They're not using it. They're not sharing it, but they've hoarded it. And he said, these are like corrupted garments that have holes in them and they're moth eaten. And then he says in silver and gold, they've gained, but yet for what? It's rusted and it's corroded. It's nothing. It's nothing lasting. Those things are fleeting and eventually they'll rust out and wear out is the point. Jesus warns against this very thing in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, stating that he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, you recall, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
The moral of the story is if we stockpile and hoard up on earth, eventually it will be taken away, it will rust, and it will be corroded. But there is no problem to stockpiling your treasures in heaven. (laughs) We want those to pile up, and that's where we want to make our investments eternally, right? John Wesley had a principle that he lived by concerning uh, financial matters. He said, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I like that. He became also known for the saying... What should rise is not our Christian standards of living, but our Christian standard of giving. We should give more always than we receive, and it's more blessed. We know the scripture says, isn't it, to give? Uh, More blessed to give than to receive. So what is your principle on money matters? Does money possess you? Is it what you think about all the time? Does it consume you? As I said before, you do not have to be rich to be in bondage to money. We can have very little and hold on to what we have and store it up for fear that we will not get any more. The principle that we want to live by is that the only thing that we want to possess us is Jesus Christ. Amen. That is what we want to possess us. We want him to consume all of our life, our thoughts, our hearts, our actions, our words. Jesus, we want to be our possession and we want him to possess us. If you are worried today, I want to read you Matthew 6, 25 through 34. It reminds us that if God takes care of the birds and the flowers of the field, we are such great, greater importance to him than he will not leave us. If we mean more to the Lord than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, don't you know that he cares for your provision? Don't you know today that he will not leave you homeless? He will not leave you without food and without clothing? Have faith and do not worry because the Lord knows our needs. And he will provide for our needs. Maybe not our wants. Maybe not our desires, but he will provide for our needs. All we need to do to make sure that we're doing is Matthew 6.33, which says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, whatever those things are that concern you, that you need, will be added to you. And verse 34 says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is today the day of trouble. Amen? Today has enough in itself. We don't even know what today has. But we do know it's sufficient enough. How do you know that Jesus will not come back tomorrow and that all that you've worried about today will be of no good. We know the Bible says it adds nothing to our height, right? Worry actually can hinder our physical um, health. We need to be mindful. I have found when I worry, not only to pray and to lay it at the feet of Jesus, 
but to keep my eyes on the prize. And the prize is that Jesus is coming soon. Amen? This is what James is going to reassure the church today. We might have problems today, but don't worry about it, ladies, because tomorrow is a completely different day, and you could be. We very more, uh, most likely in this day and age, especially what's happening now, could be in heaven. Jesus could come back for his church, and all that worry will do us no good. Amen? So why worry? Get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on the hope of heaven that he's coming soon and will return for us. So James continues in verse 4 with this rebuke, saying not only are the wealthy people selfish, but then here's another characteristic. They were fraudulent. Verse 4 says, Indeed the wages of the labor who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. It seems as though the rich landowners hired laborers to take care of their fields. They contracted them for service, and yet they were unpaid. Uh, these uh, rich people, they lacked integrity, they lacked honesty, and the laborers were so poor that they had no way to bring justice. They had no way to go through the judicial system. They had been taken advantage of, and they were used. Has anybody ever been taken advantage of? Oh, I, we have. Yeah, you know, it's, it is the worst feeling, especially as a believer, because you cannot help but feel that because you were a Christian, you were taken advantage of. Because somebody knew that you would not take them to court because you're a believer, you were taken advantage of. This happened to us. And, um, and it is the worst feeling. So throughout the scriptures, there were laws and precepts that God put in place to compensate for laborers in the field. Praise God. The Lord takes care of his people, but there are also those people that take advantage of us. The Lord also warned, though, that the failure to compensate the workers would not go unpunished. So know that. (laughs) If you've been taken advantage of, the Lord, he's heard your cry. He's heard it. He'll take care of it. The fact that these landowners were unwilling to pay for the labor, the laborers, that what did they have done? And they harvested in the field and they took care of the field. It revealed that they lacked integrity in their business relations. Even though the workers cried out to the landowners, they refused to listen to them. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you state your case and yet it's not heard. But the Lord hears. Praise God. The Lord heard the labors and he would be the judge. And we can be encouraged in that as well. Maybe today you've suffered some injustice and you're crying out just like they were. But it seems like no one's listening. The Lord's listening. He hears your cries and he will have justice. The psalmist declared that the Lord does not forget the cry of the humble. Are you a person who is of your word in your business? Do you own a business? Do you run a business? Do you have employees? Are you a person of integrity? Do you mean what you say? Do you perform what you promise? Do you have a Christian symbol on your business card or a church sticker on your car? Is your favorite Bible verse on your Instagram profile or your Facebook 
Do you live according to what you say? If you don't, take the symbol off. Take the sticker off, please. (laughs) Take the scripture down. We must be people of our word, people of integrity, people that correctly represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? We need to step up to the call, ladies. James condemns the wealthy because they were selfish, because they were fraudulent. And next, he condemns them for their indulgent way of living. Verse 5 and 6 says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. James said, Basically, you've enjoyed your temporary pleasures here on earth. You've lived a life of luxury. You've taken advantage of others in your business dealings. And the result is that you are fat, really, is that you fatten yourself up. It is just for you. You, you, you. Isn't that our world? Me, me, and how about some more of me? It is so opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus says, less of me. Don't we remember that John the Baptist said, less of me, Lord, and more of you. Less of us and more of Jesus. We should be dying daily to ourselves, not gaining daily for ourselves. James likens their fattening themselves up with their pleasure and luxury like an animal that's getting ready to go be slaughtered. Those who have lived this life of luxury and wealth and their possessions and their God, this may be some temporary advantages here, but James says that all of those advantages and treasures that were selfishly, underhandedly gained and hoarded are coming to an end. I mean, we can... Story after story after story. I really don't like using worldly applications in, um, in my studies, but I can think of many actors and wealthy people who in the end of their lives have said what King Solomon said, right? It is vanity. Vanity of vanities. It comes to nothing. And they're left with nothing. I mean, I really believe that that's why a lot of the people in the world who have so much money end up taking their lives because they see they've amassed this great amount of money and all these things and possessions. And then what? Truth be told, the word of God is true. There's nothing that, that you have. When you have everything, what else is there to live for? Nothing. And so there's nothing else to live for. But we know that we live for Jesus Christ. That is, that is what we want to store up here on earth. We want to store up um, really a testimony of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in our life. We want to store up all of those things here that point to him there. Our treasure is in heaven, but what we can say here on earth is that our Jesus never left us or forsook us, right? That our Jesus is faithful that he is true, that he never left me, that he always provided for me, what I needed, maybe not what I wanted, but what I needed. And God is building a testimony in each of our lives. And I am so grateful that the Lord has done that in my life, that he has built a testimony in my life personally, that I can point to Jesus and I can say with full and complete assurance, my God never left me. That my God provided 
When John and I didn't have money for meat, God provided. When we didn't have money for rent, God provided. When I mean, you might, might have that testimony as well. That the Lord literally provided groceries on your doorstep. God is so good to do that. We are blessed that God has allowed us to have a testimony here on earth that we can share with other people. And our testimony is that our God is good. He is loving and he is kind and he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Psalm 96.13 gives us an accurate and clear description of a God who will one day come to judge the earth. It says, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. There will be a day of reckoning, a day when the sheep are divided from goats, when the wicked and the righteous are separated. But here for us is the balance. Proverbs 30, verse 9. It says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, Lord, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. You know, remember... um, K. Smith had so much wisdom um, on this subject, but specifically for those in ministry, she would always say, don't live above or below your congregation, but seek to live in the middle. And I think, I mean, if we can help it, that um, it is true. I feel it's, don't ask the Lord for poverty or riches, just in between. <laughs> Lord, somewhere that we can, can be content and in between. And uh, we don't want to be rich or poor, we just want to be content serving Jesus. Amen? I mean, that's where the contentment is. And then we want to look uh, and await his coming for us. This is where the people here, and this is where the people still find courage, is in the second coming, in the, in the, in the rapture for us, in the rapture of the church. There is strength. This is where we find hope, and we know hope is the expectation of coming good. If you're discouraged today, look to Jesus. He is our hope, and he is returning for us. Next, James switches from the rebuke of the wealthy. Now he seeks to encourage those that are struggling, the struggling saints. He says in verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. James is referring to uh, now, as we spoke of the second coming of Christ, where he will establish his kingdom on earth, where he will rule and reign from. James, along with the other apostles, had been told uh, following the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts 1 that he would come again in like manner. And in Matthew 24, 27, we have account of that. Jesus said himself, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Although no man knows the day or the hour where the return of Jesus will come, we are certain of one thing, and that certainty is that he will indeed come. The church back then lived in the expectancy of the Lord's soon return. In the New Testament scriptures, we're told or were given over 300 references of the return of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, um, we see that again and again, 
The church is encouraged. Why are they encouraged? Why 300 times? Why do we need to be reminded? Because that's where our hope is, right? If you are in a church, prayerfully you're not, where they do not preach the return of Jesus Christ, leave. (laughs) Because that is where our hope is. Why do you think it was said over 300 times? Because we find ourselves often what? Discouraged. And where do we find courage? Where do we find hope? We find hope, the expectation of coming good, in the fact that Jesus will come back for us. He is our bridegroom, we are the bride, and he is coming. Does that bring you hope today? It does. Doesn't it like put a pep in your step and a twinkle in your eye? Yes, Lord, you are coming back for me. It almost negates everything else that's going on in our life, right? If you walked in these doors and your heart is heavy, have hope today. Jesus Christ is returning for you, for the church. That is where our hope is. James encourages the church with these words that the Lord is coming. And he says, be patient, liken it to a farmer. Be patient like the farmer. Now, I don't know if any of you have done any farming. I have not. But I assume that it is a very tedious process, even in today's day and age. But back then, even more so when they had to... um, do everything by hand. They didn't have modern machinery. They had to sow and reap and and, um, plant by hand. So as the farmer manually prepared the ground, the tilling of the soil, walking the field, throwing the seed out, then they had to, what? Wait for what? Rain. (laughs) They had to wait for rain Something that only the Lord could provide. Only the Lord can provide the second coming of Christ. We have to wait for it as patiently. We have done what we can do here on earth. We have tilled the soil. We have planted the seed. But only he can bring the water. Only he can produce the harvest. And only he can come back for his church. Be encouraged, ladies that the rain is coming. Amen? The rain is coming. He's coming. He's faithful. He'll bring it. We just have to wait for it. But waiting is never easy, is it? Psalm 126, 5 through 6, encourages us that those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Amen? He who continually goes forth reaping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Hang in there, ladies. The rain is coming. Don't grow weary while doing good. Look to Jesus. His timing is perfect. And remember what James said back in chapter 1, James 1, uh, verse 2 through 4. Remember he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Yes. Patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking what? Nothing. Lacking nothing. Patience, what does it do to us? It perfects us. Patience makes us who we are, it makes us more like Jesus. 
It's difficult to be patient and wait, especially if we're going through a difficulty, if we're in the middle of a trial and we just want out of it. But the Lord says, I need you to learn something right here in the middle of it. Patience often tests our faith, reminding us, doesn't it, that we are not in control and that he is and that he's at work. So we need to trust him. In addition to being patient for the return of the Lord, like the farmer, we are then, as we wait, not to grumble, not to complain. Verses 8 and 9 says, You also be patient. He says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He is so close, ladies. He is there. He is at the door, ready to open it. When we go through trials, we do have a tendency to complain, do we not? We do. I mean, sometimes it just goes on and on and on. You're like, I was good the first three days, but I'm done. You know, it's just like, oh, Lord, or the first few hours or whatever it is. I mean, our patience can only go so long. We tend to grumble. We tend to complain. James says, don't do it. Just like that. Don't do it. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Why? Because the Lord is coming. Do you want to find, have the Lord find you grumbling and complaining when he comes back? I don't. I don't. If we live with Jesus Christ coming at the forefront of our mind, and when we grumble, we think, oh, whoa, what if Jesus comes now? It, isn't it the great remedy? If we always have that on the forefront of our mind, it is an incredible remedy for anything. All of our grumbling, all of our impatience, all of our complaining— We must keep his return at the forefront of our mind, and it really is a cure for all problems. Because we have hope. He's coming, and we have nothing to complain about. When the temptation arises, ladies, to complain, remember the promise. The promise of his soon and near return, as if he was standing at the door with his hand on the handle, just ready to turn it. Maybe he has started to turn it already. Be ready. Establish your heart. That means ready it, prepare it, set it up, get it ready for his return. Prime the pump. We are ready for his return. And then follow James' example. He says, be patient Follow the example of the farmer. Wait for the rain. Be patient. Don't complain. Don't grumble. And then he said, be patient. And follow the examples of those that have gone before you. The prophets. He points to the prophets in verse 10 saying, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in their name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. If we look back to the Old Testament scriptures, we see that the prophets really endured a lot as they brought forth prophecy concerning the Messiah, and yet they did not live to see the Messiah. Think of what they endured for the sake of serving the Lord, and yet they didn't get to enter into that promise. 
Matthew 5, 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. James encourages those struggling. Uh, Also, he says to be like Job in verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. Of course we have. And seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. One thing that stands out in the in Job, so much stands out about Job to me, and I would highly encourage you to read the book of Job. If you read the book of Job, it doesn't mean you're going to enter some radical trial or God's going to do something. You, there is a blessing for us in Job, and predominantly it's um, this amazing characteristic that we see before us of not complaining, of um, many things we learn. But in chapter 1, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job five times affirms his faith in the darkness. Chapter 1 was 1. Chapter 3, he said, uh, he told his wife this. You know, his wife um, basically was telling him, just curse God and die. Oh, praise God that Job didn't do that. He said, shall we accept good from God and not bad? He refused, Job did, to curse God. He cursed his birth, but he never cursed God. In chapter 13, he made one of his greatest declarations in faith. In the whole Bible, he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. In chapter 19, he declared, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. In chapter 23, Job said, he knows the way I take. I will come forth as gold. I will. Not I might or maybe, and I'm hoping, I will come forth as gold. If you've ever suffered, you know that it's easy to say things that you don't really mean right? In the middle of it. We say things, they come out. It's just in our pain, in our suffering, it just happens. We kind of are impulsive. We may even make bargains with God. If you do this, I promise you, I'll do this. James points to Job's example as one that we should follow. In that although he did curse the day he was born, he never cursed God. He never made a bargain with God. In fact, he praised God and he trusted God through the fire. He stood in his faith firm while he was in the fire. And what I love about Job is in the very end, the last chapter, I think it's 42 verse 5. I don't know. Somewhere around there, he said... I have heard of the Lord, but now my eyes see the Lord. What gave Job his sight? His trials, his suffering, his pain. It was all of those things in Job's life that allowed him to go from hearing the Lord to having a clear tunnel vision to the Lord. Amen? If you are going through a time of trial and suffering, know that God has a plan and God has a purpose and you are going from hearing 
to seen. Amen? Hang in there, ladies. Trust the Lord. Firmly establish your faith in Jesus Christ. He can be trusted. We need to persevere. We have to keep moving. If we don't keep moving, what happens? We're stagnant. We stay. If we're not moving forward, we know what? We're moving backwards. We have to continue. We have to endure. We have to persevere. We have to move on with the Lord. We have to banish discouragement. And we have hope that we have something better coming. This is the point that James is trying to make. This is what he's trying to encourage the church with. Isn't it encouraging to know? It is so encouraging. The examples that he sets for us. At the beginning of the letter, James opens in uh, chapter 1 by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, blessed is the person who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. What is promised to you? The crown of life? You are promised a crown. You're rewarded in heaven if you simply endure. Do not give up. Pastor Chuck always said, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. We are never to quit. We are not quitters. Amen? We are not quitters. We will persevere. We will endure what the Lord has set before us. Because he uses in our life to make us stronger, more dependent, to draw out our faith, to use it as a testimony in other people's lives. One commentator wrote this great wrote this great insight into this. He said, speaking of the return of Jesus Christ, he said, "The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, and the more they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, the less they long for the return of Jesus." On the other hand. Many Christians who are experiencing suffering and persecution, those who daily walk with Christ, their walk is vital and deep. They will have a more intense longing for his return. To some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at the moment. Did you catch on and read again? The degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of our spiritual condition of our own hearts and lives. Do you long for the return of Jesus Christ? I hope you do. I pray you do. I exhort you to long for his soon return. It is a measure, an indication of the spiritual condition of our own lives. Hello, we're here. Do you long for the return of Jesus Christ? Are you ready to see him face to face? He's calling. Are you ready? (laughs) I am ready. Maranatha. Amen. Lord Jesus, come quickly. If we are not ready, we must get ready. He's coming back soon. 
The scaffolding is ready. It is set. Maybe you are ready. You're longing and you are saying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But you are suffering here and now. You may be in a trial. You may be in a difficult time or a circumstance. James gives us the answer in verse 13. Look with me. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a like nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly and it was that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruits. Believers are not exempt from suffering and difficulties. How we go through these certain times is very important, though. We have a choice, like Job, to grumble, to complain, to criticize others, to trust, to grow bitter, to praise him in the midst. James tells us that the key to our success in trials and suffering is prayer. Are you suffering today? Pray. He says, are you cheerful? Sing. Are you sick? Pray. Are you in sin? Confess your sins and pray for forgiveness. Repent. Do you need provision? Pray. A.J. Gordon said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Isn't that so true? We can do a whole lot before we've prayed, but if we go to the Lord first and just pray, then really we've done all that we can do. Like that's the best thing. That should be our first stop. The prayer stop. That should be the first place that we stop. Connecting with the Lord, praying to the Lord, plugging into the Lord. Not just when we're desperate, but in all times. When we're happy, when we're sad, when things are going great, when we're struggling, when we're in pain, when we're healthy. All times. Prayer cannot remove affliction, but it can give us the grace to endure it. And the faith to trust God that he can turn any trouble into a triumph. Do you trust God like that today? Do you believe that he can and will accomplish his perfect will in and through your life? And that suffering and trials are often the way that he does it. The Lord desires for us to bring our spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity And the way that he often does it is by allowing trials and suffering and pain and difficulties in our lives. He may even use us in someone else's life. As James tells us in verse 19, 
He says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's important that we seek to win the lost, but it's also important that we seek to win the saved. If we're going to help an erring brother or sister in Christ, now this is speaking of someone who's a believer and yet who's walked away or who is in sin, we must have an attitude of love, for love is what it is that covers a multitude of sins. To cover doesn't mean to sweep things under the carpet. It means to share the truth and love. It means that there is confession and repentance and restoration. Confrontation is not easy. It's very difficult. But we are not being loving if we do not seek to save somebody who is caught in sin. John Wesley was pulled from a burning house when he was a child. A fire that he was expected to not make it out of. As he shared on this particular subject, he said, Sometimes we must take risks to snatch people out of the fires of judgment. Risk, what is the risk? The risk is love. We must risk a friendship, a relationship, because that is what love does. Love risks and love covers the multitude of sin. Are you willing to take a risk for the sake of love? Is there someone that comes to mind maybe today that you think of that that person is away from the Lord? Maybe somebody that you know that is a Christian backsling that's in sin, that they need to be restored by the Lord? If the Lord has placed somebody on your heart, know that that's the Lord. And then you go to the Lord and you ask him. I often will ask the Lord, Lord, just... Give me that divine appointment. Confirm to me that I'm the one that's supposed to do it and then show me. The Lord just reminded me of a sweet story that I want to share with you as we end. My first trip to Israel, John and I were in Israel and there was a sweet young couple there. I knew nothing about them because they weren't from our church. And uh, we sat with them and had a few meals with them. And I didn't see any rings on their fingers, but I knew that they were on the trip together. So... um, Finally, eventually we found out that they were not married and that they were on the trip and that we were with Raul Reese and that he allowed them to come on the trip, which was very gracious, but they had to stay in different rooms. So found out at the very end of the trip. So the night before our last evening, or it was our last evening, we were leaving the next day. We were going to do the garden tomb and then we were on our way home. And I prayed, Lord, if you want me to talk to this couple... If you want me to share with them and point out their sin and be the one that helps them, then allow me to sit with them at breakfast. And if you've been to Israel, you know that I don't typically do breakfast. (laughs) So I did. I got up and I went to breakfast and lo and behold, there were the seats right next to them. So John and I sat down right next to this couple and we had conversation and I got to know them a little bit better. And I said, You've had such an amazing trip here. God has changed your life here. Why go home in the same sin that you came in? Let's make it right. Let's make it right. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, let's ask Raul if he'll marry you at the garden tomb. Let's do it. 
And lo and behold, praise God, the Lord opened the door. They ran to the shop, the gift shop. They got two wedding rings. I ran to the bathroom in Jerusalem. I grabbed the flowers out of the bathroom and off to the garden tomb we went. (laughs) And John was the best man and I was the best woman. And them two and Raul. And it was the sweetest thing. And I just thought, that's what it's like. You know, you never know. Had I not prayed and not been prompted and not stepped out, they could have gone back unmarried. But instead, they're still married today. Praise God. We keep in contact. They went back married and had a ceremony back at home. But they made it right. They made it right. God is so good. If we just step out in faith, if we step out in love, if we allow love to cover that and we say, let's just make it right. Let's get it right right now. We give an opportunity. Not every time will it end up like that. Sometimes it won't. But why not try if God has placed somebody on your heart? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and praise you. And thank you, Lord, that you allow us these sweet opportunities just to be a little teeny part of your plan, of your grand plan, Lord, in people's lives, God. And I do want to pray for those who may be here today that are suffering, God, maybe physically, uh, maybe there's emotionally something going on in their lives. God, would you allow them to get their eyes on the prize today, God, not on them, off of them, less of us and more of you, Jesus, Lord. May we get our eyes on your coming. May we get our eyes on you. May we know that you are standing at the door and your hand is on the handle. You may be even turning the handle today, even now, God. Your soon return is imminent, Lord. May we be about our Father's business. May you use us to snatch people from the hands of the devil, out of hell, out of judgment, God. May you help us. May you empower us. May you use us in this day and age. And may your soon return be at the forefront of our mind. Lord, we love you and praise you and thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.